Hi, I'm Corey English, a director at Reds Associates, a commercial real estate executive recruiting firm. I also serve on the board for NAOP San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm co-chair of the Marketing and Communications Committee. So I'm here today um, with our current NAOP San Francisco Bay Area chapter president, Lauren Young, and we are kicking off the NAOP podcast series. This is our inaugural podcast, and it was an event hosted by our IDEA committee, which stands for Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accountability, which is a mouthful, so we've shortened it to IDEA. So our IDEA committee did an event, and our topic was Unconscious Bias, the Business Case for Diversity. The speaker was Rebecca Johansson. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Corey. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. So... I thought that the presentation was brilliant. Rebecca's content was phenomenal. What was your aha moment or your biggest takeaway from today? Well, that's a difficult question. I actually had, I think, three takeaways uh, or aha moments. Um, There was a lot of great content and also a chance to interact with the material. One of the first things we did was a unconscious bias Mm self-assessment. I thought that was a great exercise because it it revealed to me that I I think I have a pretty high degree of lack of awareness and and a lot of opportunity to examine my own uh, unconscious biases. Yeah, I think I I felt that the that was a great way to kick off the the presentation and the meeting and get people thinking kind of about themselves and reflecting. And I I I feel like it was a lot of people had the same experience you did. Well, and then the second aha moment for me came during Rebecca's content where she was presenting some of the biological reasons for uh, the different ways men and women interact, react, communicate. Uh, So I learned about some of the science that underlies why we do what we do. And I I didn't realize there was a scientific reason. So it was interesting to bring that to the forefront of consciousness and then think about are there different ways we could use this information to be more productive rather than um, have those things hamper us? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I thought that was, it wasn't surprising because we all knew we were all a little different, <laughs> but um, I thought it was it was very enlightening. So my third aha was the results of a, a study that was done by Sheryl Sandberg, uh, where they had surveyed women who left a company who used the excuse of not having work-life balance as the reason for leaving. Mm-hmm. But in actuality, less than 2% of the women left for that reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was either some sort of toxic work environment or something that was unknown. And so as a manager, it makes me wonder when I hear someone leaving because of work-life balance, that may not be the real reason. And I should really dig in deeper to figure out what's going on. Yeah, no, I think that's a good idea. That study was surprising. So thank you, Lauren, for joining us. And without further ado, let's kick off the inaugural podcast presentation, the business case for diversity and unconscious bias. Thank you, everybody, and thanks for coming out tonight. So just a little bit about my background that might not be in the bio in front of you. It does mention that I've got a PhD in theater, of all things. 
Uh, and I started about 10 years ago doing uh, training with executives through UC San Diego in the areas of public speaking and emotional intelligence. And I've really been focusing on emotional intelligence over the course of the last 10 years. But my uh, doctoral dissertation was on taking a look at how, men, how we can see how men and women have interacted with each other in society through how women are portrayed in plays throughout history. And I was a professor at NYU teaching uh, courses on, uh, particularly focused on the Renaissance and in the Restoration, taking a look at what does it say about how men and women interact with each other from how they're portrayed in the theater of their day and what kinds of connections can we make to how do we work with each other today? Like what are still some of the holdovers today from that, from that history? Uh, and when about a year and a half ago or so, I went to the director of the executive education program at UC San Diego and I said, I really want to merge my work uh, in that field with the work of emotional intelligence in uh, the, to help talk about and engage in a conversation around something that is really becoming a crucial um, point for organizations to work on uh, right now. Uh, unconscious bias in general um, and the ways that we need to work on creating more diverse uh, teams and more diverse workspaces and creating new environments to support that diversity, but also specifically uh, with gender it itself since that is the, the focus area for me in my in my academic research. So today what we're gonna do is we're gonna, it's sort of split into two different sections. First, I'm gonna talk about unconscious bias in general, like the big picture of what is unconscious bias, what are some strategies that we can engage in, both as individuals and as organizations to try and combat that. And then secondly, we're gonna take a look at gender specifically, since uh, gender is one of the biggest segments of uh, diversity and inclusion trainings right now. Women make up more than 50% of the world population uh, and we are increasingly, uh, there's all kinds of statistics on women are getting more uh, undergraduate and graduate degrees and MBAs than men are. Uh, we're filling in the workspaces very fast and there's a lot of organizations that are having uh, conversations around how we need to hire more women. Uh, and they're hiring more women, but then they're also losing women as quickly as they're hiring them because uh, the environments aren't necessarily conducive to women uh, succeeding within the organization. We're gonna take a look briefly at the business case for diversity and inclusion practices. Uh, there have been, fortunately, over the last 10 years, a number of studies that have been done on the financial impact of creating a more inclusive space and a more diverse space. Uh, in your workplaces, um, having some specific strategies for combating unconscious bias. Um, and then we're gonna shift to gender, talking about what is gender difference, what goes into some of the miscommunications that men and women have in the workplace. So let's move forward. Our definition of unconscious bias. Um, it's the attitudes or stereotypes that affect our understanding, actions, and decisions in an unconscious manner. So even if we say we are not biased, we, we can still read differently to other people's uh, because of bias. We can react to different people. I've got a glare there. We react differently to other people because of this bias. This is, um, and there are two different ways that our brain functions. There is the conscious uh, 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 method of, of, of engaging in, uh, in complex ideas. Um, and this is when we have to think 
significantly about something. It's like a processing system that uh, that we would use to complicate, uh, to go through and figure out the complicated math problem. Um, it's the very active process that we engage in when we have to think through something that is not natural and inherent to us. And then there's the other layer, the unconscious layer, that is actually really essential to our survival. We formulate these grooves in our brains through pattern. And those patterns are called associative barriers. And the, the more we have a pattern reinforced, the deeper those grooves are and the harder it is to get away from that unconscious reaction to something. Um, there's a really fantastic book. I'm gonna be mentioning a few books um, called Biased. This one just came out. She was just recently interviewed a few weeks ago on The Daily Show as well, and I had a chance to see her speak in an event that I went to uh, a while ago. But it's a, a researcher based out of Stanford that does a lot of work on unconscious bias. Her book is really centered around um, the African-American community and looking at studies into how unconscious bias plays a role in, particularly she's interested in interactions between African-American men and the police. Um, and taking a look at what kinds of biases go into um, perceptions that might lead to higher arrest rates and violence um, and, and uh, having racially charged um, issues within communities. But she's got some really interesting things there in, uh, first of all, saying that that unconscious um, part of our brain, it's actually, uh, it's perfectly natural. It happens to every community. Everyone has these unconscious uh, default modes that we fall into, and they are reinforced both biologically and through our environment. So uh, we are biologically predisposed to be able to recognize the familiar. Um, and she tells a really funny story in there. She's African-American and she tells a really funny story in there about when she was about 12 years old, uh, her family moved to a more upscale suburban white neighborhood. And up to that point, she had grown up entirely around in an African-American community, had very little exposure to, to white people in her life. And when she got to her new school, all of the girls there, all the, 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 the other 12-year-old girls there were very welcoming to her and were embracing her and inviting her to have lunch with them and wanted to hang out after school. And she struggled for the first, she thinks about six months, I think she talks about, with actually being able to recognize their faces and remember them because she had had so, such little exposure to white faces, she couldn't tell their features apart from one another. And, and she discovered through her research that that is actually biologically driven, that, that human beings have some biological default positions that we become, uh, these grooves in our brain formulate over the familiar. And it helps us to identify a friendly face from a threatening one, um, a friendly environment from a threatening one. Um, in emotional intelligence work, we talk a lot about um, universal emotions that no matter where you were born, you, you express and you experience and you can re recognize. And those are all biologically driven for survival. They're also reinforced through our environment. So how we see other people treat other people impacts how we um, how we see them. And it goes back to, to, to young children. Um, she did a study where, or, or she cites a study in there where uh, uh, they had a group of, of, I think five or six year old children that were watching different interactions. And what they would have, they would have a, a, a white lady uh, have an interaction with a white man, and then they would have a, the same white lady have an interaction with an African-American man. And uh, she would be slightly more negative toward the African-American man than she would toward the, the, the white man. And all of those young kids perceived the African-American man as being mean or deserving of the, the 
whatever way she was was treating them. And what was really fascinating to me about that is that she said that they were far more ready to believe that it was the person who the bias was happening against uh, was the bad person rather than the person who held the bias. Um, and we recognize these, they're permeated through the media. We see um, she does lots of statistics about um, uh, the way that people of diverse backgrounds are portrayed in the media um, impacts the way that we feel about other people. Um, I've done a lot of work around representation of female characters in, in theater and film and television. Um, it's another area that where, where I'm working right now with some, some screenwriters and playwrights who are doing active work and making sure that there are more diverse and, uh, and um, uh, and interesting roles for women of all ages and shapes and sizes and colors and, and, and trying to get more diversity, diverse representation there. Um, and so representation actually really does matter because it impacts the way that we think about how we should interact with each other. And all of that is unconscious. And part of the work that we have to do is to bring the unconscious into the realm of the conscious. The more we are aware of where our biases lie, the easier it is for us to combat them. And oftentimes, um, we take a look at all the things that go into our unconscious biases, the, the ways that we perceive of people are generally surrounding uh, major fa factors of identity. So gender is a major one, ethnicity, um, physical appearance, nationality, religion, um, their personal style, their job title, uh, how they speak, if they have an accent. Um, all of these things can go into us making very quick judgments about a person. We can just glance at them and uh, arrive at a decision about how we feel about them because of all of these factors. The best way to combat that and balance the scale is through awareness, through getting to know people, <laughs> making time for empathy, making time to get to know their personal stories, to take a look at their potential, uh, to take a look at what, uh, get, getting to know what some of their customs are, what some of their values are, actually getting to know somebody as an individual person rather than uh, relying on the unconscious snap judgment that we make as part of a stereotype. Okay, so, uh, some statistics for you to, to latch on to and take back to your organizations. Um, organiza there have been a number of studies over the course of the last 15 years in particular um, that are showing organizations that have diversity and inclusion strategies see significant gains in both sales and in new client development. Um, it makes sense that we are in an increasingly global and diverse world, and so therefore uh, potential new customers want to see faces that they are familiar with and that represent their interests and their needs, because they also have uh, their own set of biases that come with, with them and, and they're not entirely sure if you're going to be able to represent what their needs are. Um, according to the Kellogg School of Management, heterogeneity is linked to more innovative ideas and better team performance. I do a lot of work on collaboration as well and you want more diverse voices in the room in order to be able to see something from all different kinds of angles. And study after study shows that when you have diverse representation in the room, you look at a problem from more places and you make fewer mistakes and you create more innovative ideas. Um, companies in the top quartile for diversity are 35% more likely to have financial returns above their respective national industry medians. 
Um, this all comes from a study from uh, Cisco that the Cisco's diversity and inclusion team put together. And they say that diverse work teams properly managed and trained, that's the key there, <laughs> properly managed and trained, produced results that were six times higher than homogeneous teams. Now, this is really key because we call it diversity and inclusion. And the inclusion part is key. That's the key factor in making the, sure that these are successful strategies. It is one thing to hire diverse people. It is another to make them feel welcome and that their contributions are valued within an organization. And that's the piece where a lot of organizations have fallen short in the past. Um, Sheryl Sandberg did a fantastic study of women in the workplace and said something like 77% of the companies that she had surveyed said that they had practices to create more inclusive environments for people of different backgrounds, but only something like 45% of the employees actually agreed that that was true. Uh, so there's a disparity there between um, desired outcomes and, and the reality. Uh, companies with high employee engagement had a 19% increase in operating income and almost a 28% growth in earnings per share. This is my favorite one. Uh, in a study of 506 US-based businesses, each 1% increase in the rate of uh, gender diversity resulted in an approximate 3% increase in sales revenues. Um, and then finally, top-listed European companies with gender diversity and management achieved a higher average stock performance over those that did not. So the numbers are out there. Um, and again, it's a reflection of the fact that we are living in an increasingly global and diverse world. More people um, are, not only are more women entering the workforce, but we're also having engagement with parts of the world that had been previously unavailable and so we have to embrace the idea of, of hiring people that reflect the markets that you want to get into. So just a couple of terms that I want to talk about in term in related to unconscious bias. Um, the word stereotype comes in and that was actually a phrase that was coined in the 1920s by a really famous uh, journalist um, and he was referring to specifically coming from an old typesetting process back in the 20s um, where basically you created plates a, a mold of a plate that would then be meant to, to be mass reproduced um, and so he was drawing on that term to to talk about the ways that we um, we jump to these sort of automatic conclusions that are pre uh, pre engraved, pre-carved, that just get repeated over and over and over again in our consciousness. Confirmation bias is another really important term, which is where people tend to actively seek out and attend to information that confirms their beliefs. So, uh, uh, and oftentimes, I mean, we've been seeing this lately in, in America. There are two different Americas right now, and both of them are actively seeking out information that only supports their point of view. Um, so how might we be able to have an open mind when we're confronted with something that might challenge our belief system? One of the, when I taught uh, speech and communication out in New York, uh, whenever I would teach persuasive strategies to my, to my university students, we would talk about creating cognitive dissonance in, in, your, uh, in your audience, which is where you're forcing them to hold two competing beliefs at the same time. Uh, it can be really uh, difficult for people to confront that, but when they're able to, to recognize that two different beliefs that are in opposition to each other are, are both uh, 
in, in conflict with one another, then they have to make a choice into which, which side that they want to, to go into. Do they want to reaffirm their, their solidly held beliefs or do they want to have an open mind to think about making a change? So I just wanted to introduce you to where that term stereotype come from, comes from and just be aware of, of times that you might be engaging in confirmation bias. Uh, when, especially um, when we get to gender, we talk a lot about there, there's oftentimes an example of, of something happening in one personal, one person's individual experience. Um, and, and how often does that stand in for a whole major problem or is that just an individual experience? Once you're aware of it, that does a lot of work toward helping to overcome it. If you're just having an awareness, bringing that into your conscious part of your brain can help you to overcome the fear of it. Also understanding some of the outside causes of anxiety that might help protect your, your own personal identity. Uh, and for, that helps to free up working memory. So if you, if you actively work to, to identify what some of those causes of your anxiety will be, then that will help free that up. Um, she also recommends writing self-affirmations um, that can also really help you bring that into your, your consciousness and, and overcome the stereotype threat. So those are some personal strategies you can engage in. Some ways that you can work both as individuals and as organizations to work on combating unconscious bias. Make an effort to assess and think about members of stereotyped groups or individuals. So really think about what their experience might be. Put yourself in their shoes. Uh, and, and think about how you might, be, how you might react or, or how that might impact the way that you perceive them. Be objective in your, in your assessments rather than relying on an overall gut feeling. Intuition and gut feelings can really lead us astray because they are relying on that unconscious uh, part of our brain that is relying on the familiar, that's relying on the way that we've always done things. So be more objective than that. Have an awareness that when you have a gut feeling about something, really ask yourself why. What's leading to that? Is it leading to, do, am I having that gut feeling just because um, this is the way that I've always thought about this? Or can you be more objective in your analysis? Notice when your responses, decisions, or behaviors might, uh, might have been caused by a bias or a stereotype and reassess those responses. So if you, if you um, make a comment that gets received in a particular way, maybe reassess where that reaction is coming from, if it might have been one of your biases that led, led to that. And then notice when a colleague expresses biased behavior, uh, and more importantly, especially if you are, uh, are, are not uh, one of the members of the population that needs help in representation, um, maybe show them or talk to them either publicly or privately um, that a, a better way to behave a better way to engage. Um, particularly around the words that we use, I think in, in the workplace are, are more overt than, than actions, but actions absolutely have a, have a repercussion. Women, um, people of color, um, LGBTQ uh, people, um, they, all of us can only go so far in terms of advocating for ourselves without allies. And it's really important to figure out how can you be a really good ally to a group that doesn't have as much representation as you do. So that's, those are some tips for individuals. For organizations, one of the really important ways that you can help create diversity in your organization is to give job applicants more anonymity. Um, I worked with one of the, the provosts at UC San Diego um, who was advocating for 
uh, totally blind uh, applicant overviews so that CVs would come without any names or personal information. Um, I submitted for uh, for a playwriting festival, uh, for a playwriting uh, award, where they purposely wanted you to take your name um, and any identifying information off of, of, of the play so it could be read purely for its content rather than taking any other biases into account. Um, throughout history, women have been using uh, initials or men, men's names uh, in order to get published or get their artwork out there. Anything can trigger an unconscious bias. It can be a name that, that clearly gives away uh, uh, an ethic background that maybe you don't want to look at that person's CV any, any more closely because you're worried that you'll mispronounce their name or something like that. So all these kinds of unconscious biases can come onto the page just from something as simple as seeing somebody's name. Make sure that evaluations as well are conducted in a structured fashion. So having a specific format, a specific rubric for how you're going to be evaluating candidates, for how you're going to be evaluating job performance, so that you aren't relying on, on feelings necessarily around that, but that there is a, a, a structured way in which everyone will be evaluated equally. And making a commitment to diversity and inclusion in decision making, in planning, and in leadership, and then engaging in organizational assessments and training to scale and transform organizational culture. Uh, I, I was talking to a few people beforehand that it's not just about having the policy in place, it's making sure that everybody in the organization is on board with it, understands why you need it. It's diversity and inclusion. It's Because the, the policies can be handed down, which will be really helpful to to supporting organizational goals, but unless everybody on on the team is is committed to creating an inclusive environment where everybody feels welcome and valued, um, then then you're going to be losing people as quickly as you're hiring them. So, shifting specifically to gender, um, I really want to I, I like to approach uh, talking about gender from a, a space of figuring out how we can celebrate the differences rather than worrying about them too much, uh, rather than worrying about the ways that they've caused issues in the past, but really taking a look objectively at how we are different um, and using that as a, as a sort of a roadmap for figuring out how we can change the way that we work together in the future. So um, there's a, a term gender intelligence, a woman Barbara Annis uh, uh, coined the term, and, and she defines it as an understanding of and appreciation for the natural differences between men and women that go beyond the biological and the cultural, and having an awareness that gender differences are both first informed by nature. There are biological differences between men and women that impact the way we work together. Um, but they're also reinforced by our family, by our education, uh, by our culture, by our environment. So uh, my, I've got a varied background. I, history is really a, an area that I, that I was really heavily invested in, uh, in throughout my life. And that led to an undergraduate degree in anthropology. Uh, <laughs> and so I was really interested, I, I, I took a, a, a really close look at the differences, what happened when we shifted away from hunter-gatherer societies into um, agricultural societies where we were settled in particular places in, in land. Um, and our biological differences that we have from one another are, are really, you can see how they were applicable to the times when we were hunter-gatherers and the way that we can work in harmony with one another. Um, and uh, because we've worked toward, especially over the last hundred years, this sort of monolithic culture in which men went to work and men created uh, organizations and women t tended to stay home and work with the families, um, organizations were modeled after the way that men worked. 
which worked for, for them for a while. Um, we no longer live in a world where we can, where very many families can afford to be a one income household anymore. More women are now entering the workforce. Women make up more than 50% of the population. And when more than 50% of the population can't afford to not work, uh, then we have to figure out how do we need to recreate these environments to celebrate the ways uh, that we can work together and the differences that we bring to the table. Well, I, I just wanted to, to show you really quickly, um, IBM actually engaged in this. In 1995, they engaged in the, the process of engaging, getting more female executives, and they in, increased it from 185 to 1,000 in 10 years largely through developing a task force to study what was happening. Executives were asked to reach out to constituent employee groups and ask them to partner with the company in addressing the gender, in addressing the gender uh, balance challenge. They created a substantially mentoring system uh, in which executives specifically mentored individuals and groups in career advancement and work-life balance. They instituted a new policy whereby managing diversity became one of the core competencies that they assessed managers by, and then they also supported that with training. And leaders were called on to act as role models, mentors, uh, including leaders who were juggling motherhood and work-life balance, which are two key issues for women. Um, last, that I will leave you with is that <clears throat> that is the number one reason that women give for leaving a position is that they need work-life balance. The reality, according to Sheryl Sandberg's uh, uh, research study she just released, is that in reality, only 2% of women actually leave for that reason. So if a woman says she's leaving your organization for to spend more time with her family or to get more work-life balance, chances are she's saying that because it's a it's an acceptable excuse to get a good recommendation for where she wants to move on to in the future. And there might be a lot more going on that's leading to that decision. Um, one of the books talks about a, a law firm that lost millions of dollars because seven of their top female partners left over the course of a year because of the toxic work environment they found themselves in. Every single one of those women cited work-life balance or wanting to spend more time with my family as the reason for leaving. What they really did is they went off and set up their own law firms and took clients with them totaling millions of dollars in the course of a year. So uh, be thinking about that. It is true, women need, everybody needs work-life balance, not just women, everybody needs it. <laughs> um, but thinking about if that's a, a reason that's being given often for why women are leaving, then maybe rethink it might be something else that's contributing to that. And uh, with that, thank you guys very much. It's great. So Lauren, thanks so much for joining me. It's been my pleasure, Corey. And to those listening, thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed the content, please subscribe and share our podcast with your friends in social media. You can subscribe by going to our website at NAOP, S-F-B-A, I'll spell it out, N-A-I-O-P, S-F-B-A.org, or you can go to iTunes and if you enjoyed the content, our idea committee and their mission is really important and we're hosting more events throughout the year similar to this one. So thank you and we hope to hear from you soon.